at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. everyone welcome to another episode of the Turing podcast i'm your host ed and i'm here with rachel and joe rachel how are you today i'm good thanks how are you not bad at all as we always mention in this intro since we started the podcast last year yeah we're still coronavirus we're still we're still in lockdown <laughs> how are you joe i'm good i'm good just ticking along yeah <laughs> that's about as that's the best we, we can hope for these days so <laughs> <laughs> yeah but to, to lift our spirits, today we've got a very special episode of the Cheering Podcast because we've got a celebrity on the podcast. Rachel, we interviewed him. Who, who was it that we interviewed? Uh, we interviewed Robert Winston, which is very exciting. It was indeed. Um, it's definitely the most high profile person we've had on, on the show so far. So stay tuned for that. But before we go to Robert Winston, Rachel, I believe you're going to spin Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun. Yeah, very excitingly, I get to do that for the first time. Give it a spin. <laughs> Spinny noise. <laughs> so, the game today is True Truths and AI. So you guys have to pick the fake headline. Wow, Great. sounds fun. So, it's two rounds. So the first round. Uh, first headline is, not much of a writer... AI bot will write your Valentine's Day card for you based on the attributes you like about your partner. Second headline is Dr. Robert, AI to be used to decide who gets COVID treatments in hospital. And finally, Robot Dog is taught to fend off human attackers by artificial intelligence. Which one isn't true? Well, the the last one definitely sounds like uh, a red herring. Like, it sounds outrageous, but probably is a real headline. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, 100%. What, who's, who's that dog? The Boston Dynamics dog? I mean, Spot. Spot, yeah. Yeah. That's probably, yeah. So can, can you give us the, the first two again, Rachel? So the first one is, not much for a writer, AI bot will write your Valentine's Day card for you based on the attributes you like about your own partner. And second one is, Dr. Robert, AI to be used to decide who gets COVID treatment in hospitals. I mean, both of those are very topical and also could be real. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the first one is, is is firstly very very lazy if it's true. Well, yeah. <laughs> but also the thing that should, yeah, should we be using AI for that? So, I, yeah, should we go with the, the COVID one as being mm. the lie? Yeah, what I think that's think? the lie. All right, we'll go with that one. Ah. I was hoping I'd been able to write a convincingly real headline, but no, you're correct. That is the lie. But it is based on a real headline from the Daily Mail, which is AI computer can determine whether you'll die from COVID-19 with 90% accuracy. 
So I actually, if anything, made it slightly more cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> nice. One point to us. Round two. So, outrage as AI robot wins international poker championship, creator takes the winnings. Or, okay. detecting human emotions with radio waves, scientists develop AI technology using wireless signals to reveal changes in heart rate and tell how someone is feeling. And then finally, a court of young people say they would have sex with human-looking AI robot, Russian <laughs> poll shows. <laughs> well, so I, I hope the last one's true. That sounds funny. <laughs> Yeah, I am. Um, uh, in fact, I know that the last one is true. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know a lot of Russians, Jay? Yeah, I'll... yeah. It wasn't collating the headlines. It was just yeah. I just know that fact. She's, <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> Got a little news flag. Um, um, the the middle one about the radio waves sounded very very complex. Um, that sounds, you know, that would be a, a big thing to fabricate there, Rachel. I'm not sure about that. What was the first one again? Outrageous AI robot wins an international poker championship and the uh, creator yeah. takes the winnings. I mean, that doesn't sound like something that's actually happened. So I, I reckon that one's a lie. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, I'm leaning towards that one. I know there has been a lot in the media about AIs reading emotion and yeah, there have been various stories about that. Um, slightly terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I would be very sceptical as to how how well that can actually be done but yeah <laughs> yeah be, i mean using radio waves to read emotions seems radio waves is it yeah. doesn't feel true hang it's on she's she giving us a Rachel, clue there. Throwing us a... <laughs> can you i read mean the either way it could be a, it could be a real headline or headline or not a real headline but it still sounds Okay. I don't know you how know true what? it would I'm going to compete way. with Ed. So, Ed, are you going for the poker one? I'm going to go for mm. the second emotion one and say that's not true. Well, hang on a second. I feel like I may have been really stupid here now. Can, can you reread the second <laughs> one? Just because is it something really weird and pseudoscience and I just didn't pay enough attention? <laughs> <laughs> Detecting human emotions with radio waves, scientists develop AI technology using wireless signals to reveal how someone is feeling. Mm, okay yeah I, i'm i'm definitely gonna agree with jay now that that one's a lie <laughs> that one is true it's from oh, the daily God. mail <laughs> the lie okay. is the poker championship so you were right the first uh... time an ai algorithm has in the past won poker games and i think it has previously won a poker championship in like 2019 but not recently oh, okay so wrong on multiple fronts there from me. Don't shouldn't change my mind. And no. I was yeah, okay. Don't, yeah, don't 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 copy me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean to be fair, detecting human emotions with radio waves doesn't sound Yeah. It's a real headline, but it, I mental. don't know how real the science is. Right. That's what we're guessing is. Is it a real headline? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, where was the um where what outlet was that one in? Daily, Daily Mail. Mail. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> 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 is there round three no there's only two rounds i'm afraid it's only Just... two rounds so we got one one out two that's a solid 50 percent yeah well done us. that's pretty good i think the <laughs> hardest thing we've i found trying to write these was that most headlines involving ai sound really ridiculous so it's quite mm. hard to write mm, something yeah. that's both equally ridiculous but believable at the same time yeah there's a lot of um very sensationalist headlines when they relate to AI, um, particularly in the Daily Mail. Yeah. 
<laughs> it features yeah. quite strongly in the list of examples. We also, I should say, we were discussing before we started recording that we have a lot of uh, colleagues at the Institute who have strong opinions about AI sensationalism. We'll have to get them on the podcast to talk about that at some point. Yeah, definitely. But in the meantime, thanks very much for that game, Rachel. Okay, and on to our interview with Lord Robert Winston. But just before we go on, just to rem- uh, point out that there was a few technical issues during the recording, oh, yeah. but persevere <laughs> with the interview because it is really interesting stuff. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Cheering Podcast. Today we're joined by the Right Honourable Lord Robert Winston, who is Professor of Science and Society and Emeritus Professor of Fertility Studies at Imperial College London and a member of the House of Lords, who has also worked as a TV presenter for a variety of BBC science documentaries. Today we're going to be talking to Robert about what he's been thinking about during coronavirus pandemic and the relationship between science and society. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Um, So at the end of last year, we invited you to one of our Turing online conferences and you were talking um, a bit about the kind of historical context of the pandemic that unfortunately is still going on today. Um, And as a historian by training, I found that part really interesting. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about sort of how normal the time we're living through currently really is historically, um, kind of given the prevalence of pandemics in the past? It's a great question, isn't it, really? I mean, I think um, it's a very pertinent question because, of course, what we know, and I think what I tried to say at that conference briefly was that we never learn from history. And sadly, scientists tend to ignore the humanities far too much. Um, And we know that pandemics completely reoccurred very frequently. If you go to any decent art gallery, like the Uffizi, for example, in, in Florence, you'll see evidence of the bubonic plague, which is occurring repeatedly in spite of the plague, which had happened already in, in, in the 14th century. But in Renaissance painting thereafter, you could see that people were still dealing with this plague because it kept on reoccurring. And I think from the historical point of view, the, the, the earliest really good record we've got of um, of plague is probably the plague of Justinian in in 541. And that went on until 549, and it pretty well destroyed the the Roman Empire. I mean, the, the, the epicenter was Constantinople, but it probably started in Central Asia. And it's only more recently now that we know for certain that it was Eusinia Persitis, the bubonic plague, because um, people have traced the DNA of, of, that, of that bacterium. Now, of course, a bacterium and a virus are very different, but the similarities between these microorganisms and how they... Um, how they respond to their own evolution is very striking. And um, I think it's fair to say that the plague of Justinian actually continued with repeated episodes till about the 8th or possibly even ninth century. So, you know, it was pretty serious. And um, it was serious enough really to, to largely destroy the, the empire. And, and it spread right across the entire Mediterranean. So it went as far as North Africa right across down towards um, Turkey. And um, I I think I'm right in saying that in parts of the um, Middle East, at least, uh, something like one third of the population died and there were people dying in the streets. And Prokofius, who describes this um, historically, um, 
there was good eyewitness accounts showing people dying in the streets and so on. Um, the 1347 plague is interesting because, from my point of view, that's a really important plague because we know for certain how it was spread. It was spread by travel. It was spread definitely as a result of shipping. So the latest technology, of course, now it would be the aeroplane, which is interesting. But then, of course, it was shipping. And that certainly spread again from a center in in Asia. Uh, and that was Yersinia. And I think um, that really continued with repeated um, outbreaks, as you know, throughout throughout Europe. And certainly there were villages in in um, parts of England that continued to to uh, have this disease. And I suppose, really, you know, the, the, the plague of London in in 1665, 1664, really, um, which is when it started, uh, that was definitely sp spread by shipping. It came from um, probably Amsterdam, certainly Holland anyway. And um, so the epicenter was the east end of London, uh, because, of course, that's where people were working from the docks. And um, I suppose the, the, the account that I really like um, which actually I recently reread about uh, in the last year, um, asking me what I did during the plague. <laughs> no, was uh, Daniel Defoe's um, account, which, of course, he was only five when the plague break out, broke out in London. But he he then wrote the Journal of the Plague Year much later from lots of eyewitness accounts, and it rather looks as if about probably at least a third of London died. And what's interesting about that, um, it might have been more than a hundred thousand, but. Um, what what is very clear to me, which is, I mean, there are lots of interesting things. First of all, that there are eyewitness descriptions which show that some way through the plague, suddenly, it wasn't the bubonic plague anymore; it was pneumonic. Uh, people suddenly were spreading it by droplet infection rather than by uh, by the buboes and by rats and fleas and so on. And that's important because, of course, it became much more virulent arguing, of course, that you actually have a mutation in, in that bacterium. And then I suppose the most recent, the third great pandemic that's hit the world with um, Pasteurella pestis or Yersinia pestis would be the plague of um, 1850, which started in China. Um, and that um, that killed a very large number of people as well. I, they say that, I mean, there are various records which suggest, you know, tens of millions died in, in that plague. Mm -hmm. And that didn't finally burn out until about 1960. So, I mean, for those of us that are a bit gloomy, <laughs> you know, one has to say that, you know, we should recognize that, you know, it's no good complaining about being locked down, which is what some politicians have been doing. I mean, it's extraordinary in the House of Lords. There's one individual there, Lord Robottom, who is completely oblivious to the fact that <laughs> you know, people were dying. And right. and and I thought his, his uh, pretentious speeches were absolutely appalling. Um, but nobody was prepared to um, argue with him, largely because the House of Lords is a very polite, in, polite, polite institution. Right, right. <laughs> it was pretty obvious what people thought of him. Anyway, whatever the whatever the case, um, it seems to me that the, the the thing which has really protected us against Pastorella pestis, I keep on calling it Pastorella, of course, it, it was renamed Yersinia by this Russian um, bacteriologist Yersin, who in fact finally described it and cultured it. Um, so, so that's the actual organism that causes the plague, right? That's the, yeah, and he also he actually also made an, a, 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 a vaccine, right? right. Uh, he injected himself. Right. What's what, uh, when? What century was this? We talked. Oh, eighteen ninety. Eighteen ninety. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, 
you know that that was pretty 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 amazing but but i think um what was i going to say i i mean i think i think the 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 interesting thing is that um the the big protection we've got against it now first of all is natural humidity i mean if uh, I, i i handled in my research throughout my career i've handled rabbits and they carry that bug um or a very similar bug anyway um and you know we don't get infected really unless unless we're really you know in a very bad state of health or whatever um and and secondly um not only have we got natural immunity as a result of um constant um reoccurrence of the organism we have antibiotics right now yeah. antibiotics of course do kill that bacterium pretty effectively but one of the things that we're always forgetting is that actually the biggest single problem worldwide is the uh, risk of infection and the big problem of course is microbial resistance to antibiotics and that's increasing and i think that that would be very high on the list of who's concerns and also the center for disease control in america both would argue that those would be very important issues but we use antibiotics in a ridiculous way uh, which would encourage of course resistance um we use them for example for cattle rearing because we want to get more muscle on the animal to make good beef um and there are all sorts of examples of where we're we're using um bacteria for example for fish farming uh, um uh, antibiotics for fish farming and of course again that's probably not very sensible and we give antibiotics to children because they've got a bit of a temperature when they've got a virus when it went of course work work anyway it's a really interesting point that you raised there about antibiotic resistance we had um a researcher on the podcast last year who was focused in on on that exact topic i have to say she was she was quite pessimistic about the uh the possibility of there being a pandemic caused by uh bacteria rather than the viral one we're going through right now um bacteria that become resistant to the current crop of antibiotics um so yeah that that's an enormous challenge as well but it, it another point i wanted to make um based on what you were saying which is that um yeah we're in this situation now where it seems terrible to us none of us have lived through this pandemic something like this before and it's absolutely tragic that like millions of people have died globally but because of modern technology and because of the the measures that we've had in place and so on we're talking about millions of people out of billions who have died whereas when you're talking about the plagues that happened before you know you're looking at a third of europe got wiped out or something like that which is just a, a totally different scale i mean i think uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a member of the house of lords back then who denies uh, <laughs> what was happening <laughs> Well actually that's the interesting question. In fact you're wrong about that last time. Oh really? Oh no. <laughs> Because we know from Daniel Defoe that what happened in London was that the rich people including government left London. They all they all decamped. Right, right. They right. went off where do you think to Oxford of course where else? Um Well I have to and, tell you Robert um that's exactly what I've done this year. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was living in London and and I'm currently living in Oxfordshire. So <laughs> well they all went off to Oxford but what's interesting about the plague of London was it was it was local it was local authorities actually that kept the peace and they did a pretty good job so actually local government really helped there interestingly I mean as a sideline but you know i think there are always people i mean in fact there were no doubt there were lots of skeptics during the plague of london i mean there were accounts of young people gathering in pubs saying look at them all dying in the streets aren't we fine and drinking away and then finding that they've got the disease a few days later um 
And of course, bubonic plague is pretty painful because the buboes really hurt. In fact, there's one wonderful Renaissance painting where you can see people have put crisscrosses right across the skin to cut into the bubo to try and drain it because the pain is so massive. The pain of the incision was trivial compared with the pain of the swelling. Uh, I mean, pretty unpleasant. But just to come back for a second to the virus, I think the lesson's important too because, of course, we've concentrated on vaccines and we've concentrated on rather inadequate testing. But actually, the big issue will be to have antiviral drugs. Mm, yeah. At the moment, we don't have much. I mean, there's uh, one drug which seems to be pretty effective in the early stages, which would be ideal, and it's portable, is interferon beta. And that uh, can be taken by inhalation. So actually, if we gave people that early on in the stages of the disease, you wouldn't get the virus getting into the cells because, of course, if they don't get into the cells, they don't replicate. Mm -hmm. So you don't get mutations and you don't get the spread of the virus. So I, I, I think there are strategies. But now, uh, clearly, um, all these things will mutate. And, you know, your, your, your previous lecture on uh, microbial resistance is dead right. It's a very, very serious issue. Um, in fact... Um, I've always I've always felt um, that in terms of global issues, it's probably more important than climate change. Even even bigger, well, I suppose. An even uh, bigger threat, yes, because, yeah. because we've seen what what could happen with this one. Um, it's a bigger threat um, because it's so it's so quick and problem. Right, really, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't have times to mitigate against it. Well, of course. I think with climate change, I mean, I think the, the two issues are really interesting, by the way, if I may, because in fact, they're so closely connected. First of all, if you have climate change, then you're going to be less resistant to these diseases, particularly in poor countries from which it will spread. And secondly, it's a global issue. And therefore, we have to have global strategies to deal with these, these issues. And unless we recognize that collaboration and cooperation right across the world is essential, um, out of self-interest, because, of course, what happened with the plague can happen with the virus. Uh, it will keep on recurring in pockets unless, of course, we actually have a global mission to try and deal with it in, 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 a, in, a, in a, you know, it's, it's a pandemic. So we need to do it across, you know, across the world. And I think what I think has been very encouraging um, about this uh, current pandemic has been the degree of collaboration there is. And that, I think, does offer a lot of hope. So, for example, in Britain, we're sequencing all these uh, viruses from all over the world. And, you know, people are starting to think about sharing the, the vaccines, which we've really got to do. Um, and, of course, we're going to have to give medicines at a cheap rate to some of the countries like Africa, for example, in Africa, for example, um, because otherwise they're not going to be able to afford them. And we're also going to have to deal with some of the climatic and environmental changes which make this more likely. And, of course, the big one, which is constant and reoccurs again and again, is deprivation. Deprivation always spreads infection. And, of course, in the – to come back oh, – sorry, to be boring – coming back to the plague of London, it was it, – the, the rich people left London. It was the poor people who died because they were living in dreadful circumstances. They couldn't wash, for example. And – um, you know, they, they they had no choice to, they couldn't get rid of the contamination and they lived with the rats. And I suppose one of the biggest threats for us now is our close proximity to animals. You know, we know that this virus um, originally um, occurred in uh, probably bats, uh, but it, there are various animal species which have been uh, possibly suggested. 
uh, but there are quite a lot of evidence in the DNA that that's true. But of course, once they've come out of the animal and infect the human, they are very dangerous. They can be very virulent. And we saw that, for example, with avian flu and pig flu, which were really quite nasty uh, infections. And of course, the last thing we really want now is to get another version of, of, of this microbe, um, of, 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 of COVID-19, uh, which actually has gone through uh, an animal host and then come back in to infect man. Uh, I mean, imagine what would happen, for example, if dogs were susceptible to coronavirus. They don't seem to be, by the way. They don't often seem to get coronavirus-type colds. Nonetheless, you know, it's a warning. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. One of the things that, that I've picked up on with people I know is, you know, there's this attitude of, um, oh, this is a once-in-a-century in a event uh, because, you know, the last time it happened was, you know, 1918 with the mm. the, the flu um, that killed lots of people, I think, after the First World War. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for the history fact-check there, Rachel, <laughs> after the First World War. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it's not. I mean, we've had close calls really recently with swine flu and, and uh, bird flu, as you said. And then there was the Zika virus and, and Ebola in West Africa. Well, Ebola was which... the one that caused the biggest panic. And of course, it's a very right. interesting lesson because that arrived in West Africa. And we knew perfectly well it was there for decades. I mean, you know, the, the people were dying. Nobody cared. There were black people. Frankly, that was yeah. the problem. There were black Africans. And why should we worry? But then suddenly people realized it could get on an aircraft and within eight, nine hours, they could be in London and we would have no defense. And we were lucky because, of course, this was an infection which was not caused by droplet infection. Droplet yeah, infection yeah. was wicked. But actually, it was, um, it was, of course, largely carried by touch in body fluids. So unless somebody vomited over you in the aircraft, you were probably quite safe. But... You could see how inadequate our, really, our, our preparations were. You, you remember the photographs of people taking the temperatures of people coming off planes from Africa? You know, I mean, a ridiculous yeah. way of trying to control the epidemic that was potential. Um, and it was only really then, it was, you know, only, what, five years ago, we suddenly started to get serious about recognizing we needed to protect the health of the African population in West Africa and really take it very seriously, not just for us, but also for them too. And I think, I think you know, we do live in a growing, a growingly responsible society, but we're very, we're very uh, neglectful of people who aren't directly concerning us. Um, particularly, I'm afraid, one's sad to say when it's a different race or you know whatever. Yeah, I mean, something I found uh, really interesting is when sort of people talk about. Uh, I think there was a kind of again, from maybe a more historical perspective, like the idea that we were kind of immune to pandemics as like sort of an advanced Western country with an advanced healthcare system. And I think a lot of that is interestingly maybe linked to vaccines. Like if you talk to people before, like vaccination was like prevalent across children and like you knew people who had measles who died as a child and you knew people who got polio. And then when that kind of went and it's like a couple of generations later and everyone's like, well, no one gets illnesses in that way anymore no one gets there's no sort of viruses that just sort of kill a certain percentage of children every year and so like the concept of a pandemic hitting a country like England and becoming a massive thing it just felt so almost untangible compared to 
it's kind of like, oh, Ebola happens in countries that are poor and it wouldn't happen in a rich country because we've got the infrastructure to deal with it, even if that's not actually the case. I suppose I suppose when, when HIV broke out, uh, we realised that this was a very serious um, infection, a viral, a viral infection. So that that certainly did, I guess, raise public awareness. And what we've forgotten, of course, is that polio is still endemic right across the world. And although we don't get it now because we've got effective vaccination, um, and I mean, when, when I was a schoolboy, um, my school was shut down for a, a whole term because one boy had contracted polio. So it was very serious. Right. Another um, big killer, of course, which um, fits in very well to what you're saying about the developed world not um, caring as much or at least not putting the money forward to the developing world who suffers from the disease, which we don't suffer from, is, of course, malaria. And that goes back to the the climate change issue that you said, which is that because malaria is uh, uh, spread by mosquitoes, which only live in tropical parts of the world, um, they're obviously not an issue in you know northern Europe. And so, you know, there's just not the incentive from a point of view of looking out for ourselves to develop uh, treatments and vaccines for malaria. Not that, of, of course, in reality, that there are lots of people um, in the developed world who are doing that, but. It would have been, of course, a, a, a much bigger priority, I'm sure, if the sorts of numbers of people dying in Africa from that disease were dying in Europe. I'm sure that's right. Though I, I must say, um, malaria is something that we're really taking quite serious notice of now in research terms. So, I mean, for example, um, at in at Imperial College, there's a pretty interesting project where they're uh, uh, Modifying the genome of the of of the bug so that in fact it can't replicate, mm. and and I think that that that's quite interesting. And there are a whole range of different strategies with with genetic modification which might be relevant there. But uh, yes, you're right, and of course um, we can see that again historically because if you go to Sardinia, there's a museum in Sardinia where there are sc- skulls of um, adults who have big extended. Um, cavities for marrow because you don't grow bone marrow in your skulls really unless you're pretty sick so they clearly had a blood dyscrasia thalassemia and the question is why did they have thalassemia why was it so common in that island well of course um it was it it was it was fortunate because it protected them against malaria so obviously that was a malarial paradise at the time but as as the climate changed of course malaria went down to uh, to Africa, but of course, if we if we modified the gene for thalassemia in that population now and, and, and obliterated it, you might end up with another malaria outbreak. It's quite interesting. I mean, it's a very complex issue. Um, and, is and is think, thalassemia is that the same as sickle cell? Uh, no, it's disease? not. But it's it's another blood dyscrasia, which is right, rather right. worse actually than than sickle cell. Well, oh, okay. they're both pretty bad, but. But Peter, Thal- Peter Thalassemia, by the age of 14, you're likely to die, you know, in your teens. Right, um, right. Because I, I, I asked because I remember the, um, I think back from school, actually, being told that the very, very similarly, people in certain parts of Africa where the sickle cell uh, anemia is common, but where they have the, what, what's called the, 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 um, where, the people who are carriers of it, but don't have the disease themselves. malaria. They don't get malaria, right? So that's why it's so prevalent there, and not in other places where. That's obviously right. Obviously, it, it wouldn't have been um, something that passed I mean, on to the next generations. 
Beta thalassemia is a is a nasty disease. I mean, it, it's uh, endemic in thalassemia because it's a genetic mutation, a recessive um, mutation, and um, it's quite common for both partners to have it. They've been doing a huge amount of screening of the population to prevent that sort of marriage, if possible. But something like um, one in seven people carry uh, carry that mutation. So. Um, the chances of having uh, getting rid of thalassemia are very serious, and, the, and it had been an absolute drain on the health service. There, I mean, something like fifty percent of the healthcare is 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 dealing after dealing has been in the past anyway dealing with these children, and the only treatment is a bone marrow transplant, really, uh, you, you know, by changing the, the way you produce red cells, which of course nobody could afford there. So it's a it's a devastating disease. I mean, sickle cell anemia is not quite so bad. I mean, but in its most ferocious state, it's a pretty nasty disease as well, and it causes a lot of suffering in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, well, Robert, going back to what the topic of um, what the general public thinks about um, all of these things, um, with COVID, we're, we're sort of living in a time now where the Prime Minister is regularly giving press conferences flanked by senior scientists, um, which is kind of unprecedented. And um, what do you think about how this has affected the general public's understanding of science, um, whether it's the epidemiology of, of COVID or the vaccinations or other aspects of the pandemic? Um, do you think it's been good for public understanding of science or bad or somewhere in between? It's a very interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think ultimately what's good for public understanding is probably not... Um, you know, Patrick Valance and, 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 and Chris Whitty standing in front of a camera having to um, really support government um, activity. I mean, ultimately, that's not probably great for science. Um, I, that's not a criticism of them, by the way. I think they've done a fantastic job. Um, no question. We've been very lucky to have them. But in the long term, I don't think, well, we know all sorts of polls, as you know, show that politicians are not trusted. And uh, you know, politicians and journalists are probably the two, uh, you know, the two most serious um, issues. And of course, in a sense, when you're standing in front of the, the prime minister like that, you're partly a journalist and partly a politician. Uh, and I think that's a difficulty in the public eye. However, I think people have been pretty trusting. Whether they would continue to be so, I think, is interesting. I, my own view is that I think the best thing we can do as scientists is to be, and, and these people are, I mean, hey, I'm not suggesting they're dishonest, they're not. But I think it, just in general, leaving leaving aside the pandemic for a moment, it seems to me that we've got to be very careful to be modest. I think we've got to be absolutely sure not to be arrogant. Um, and I think we've got to be really prepared to be truthful. And I think public trust is something which we have to value hugely. Um, and it doesn't take much to destroy public trust. We saw it with the measles vaccine, for example. So, um, you know, in that sense, I think, um, you know, Chris Whitty and, and, and Patrick Valance have done a, a good job. Um, but I don't know, um, you know, there have been times when obviously trust in the prime minister has certainly ref reflected on what they're saying, and that hasn't been helpful to science. Um, we've been a bit lucky because, of course, they did get the, they, they threw the dice right with regard to the vaccines. You know, they got out with a Pfizer very rapidly, and that was brilliant. And they and they overordered, which is you know pretty good too. But um, uh, just before the vaccines were released, if you look at the polls, you would see that uh, Johnson was really really trailing. 
I mean, he was in great difficulty in the polls. And, um, you know, had the vaccines not come along, I think it might have been a very different story. So to some extent, to have your really good scientists having their reputation based on that sort of, you know, freak issue, you know, is, is pretty risky. And I think, um, I think we always have to be very careful um, not to be too close to the to the politics. I think they've done well in that respect. Um, but you could see what happens when, you know, people in the polit- political arena suddenly sort of flouted the rules. That was, you know, disastrous, really, I think. Um, and it wouldn't have taken much more to really destroy trust completely. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I think it's not, it's not, it, I think what's done really good for a good job for science actually has been the success of the things that they've been saying. I mean, people were delighted with, I mean, the, the, you remember the, the wave of ex- exuberance when the first vaccines came on, 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 on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, something I've found interesting, I mentioned this in the previous podcast is, so obviously I don't come from a scientific background whatsoever. Um, and I was saying it's always quite entertaining, or entertaining, but interesting that sort of a year, 14 months ago, if someone said to me, oh, what's an R number? I'd have sort of been like, I have no idea what on earth you're talking about. Whereas now kind of, I think a lot of people have, it's a very specific area of science, but have sort of a lot more knowledge about that sort of terminology and kind of what those sorts of things might mean than they had, like when the country as a whole would have had no concept of that as an idea. Um, over a year ago, so <clears> it's <throat> very specific scientific knowledge. <laughs> it's an interesting question, this, isn't it? I, <clears throat> I, I, I had a. Um, sorry about my 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 voice has gone completely. I'll, t- I'll take a turn to it. I think um, just to pick up on what Rachel said there, um, my sense as well, and this is probably not. Um, I can't. I, I'm not offering this opinion as a data scientist because I've not conducted any polls or done any any data science on that data but I do have the sense as well that yeah as Rachel said people realize now that you can easily suddenly be in a situation where it's really important to understand what's going on at a level of sort of and having an understanding of science and maths that (laughs) that enables you to to actually understand that to be able to interpret the graphs that they put on the tv or to understand something like the R number, um, people, I, I feel like that there's going to be some level of, of uh, movement in the public towards taking other issues, maybe it's climate change or other things, like a bit more like, well, hold on a second, let's look at the data, you know, what do the, the graphs that are coming out say? Um, but yeah, that, that's quite anecdotal. I don't know whether there is a movement in the public in that direction or not really, but I think, I think it's been going on for a long time, actually, because I'm just looking at my own career, thinking about it. Um, the first television series that really spoke science was um, The Ascent of Man, Jacob Ronowski, um, in, the, in the early 70s. And um, it was a phenomenally intelligent stuff. It was a, it's a brilliant series. It's a 13-part series, which you could never film now because it was too detailed, too much science in it. But only a, only a million people watched it, interestingly. And in 1978, I did a thing called Your Life in Their Hands, which was about medicine and surgery and, and so on, with 
a brilliant producer, John Mansfield, who died of COVID this year, recently, a few weeks ago. And um, John used to stand me in front of a camera and then say, Robert, don't understand what you're saying. You're completely unintelligible. Or Robert, you sound pompous. And basically he knocked out, he knocked me together and put, you know, made me, made me really think about how to present a bit better. I think it was the first shockwave, really, of presentation. That was in uh, 1978. And in fact, that series had about 9 million viewers uh, uh, repeatedly. So suddenly there was a, a there was a sudden interest in, in, in science, not due to me, by the way, just, I mean, it just there was a change generally publicly. Uh, up to that time, you had Civilization, of course, which was a big series. And um, uh, Jonathan Miller, of course, had been done, The Body in Question, uh, which again was not massively watched, but was again very long pieces to camera, which you know were very very elegant and very intellectual. And I took I took the view that really I wouldn't speak for more than twenty five seconds maximum on screen. Um, and and I mean I think I think it, it, it I think science broadcasting has has made a difference to public engagement. Um, yeah. I think we yeah we, we lost you for a moment there. So I think uh, what you were just saying. Well, you remember the, the talking remember about the, the, uh, the nuclear your... power station um, in in North Japan, which which blew up. There was a tsunami, which was about the same sort of time. And and Fukushima, you're talking about. Yes, and um, that's right. And the extraordinary thing was that the you know the, the Daily Mail, which is not science literate on the whole, came out with the most positive comment about nuclear power, saying how important it was and we shouldn't now affect our our nuclear power status, which I think actually was absolutely right. Mm, so yeah, yeah. I think there's been a change, but I think also if you look at the history of nuclear power, it's a classic example of where we got it wrong. You know, in 1960, this was the you know the, the great future, and we were investing from the Research Council uh, about 600, 700 million a year, which was quite a large sum of money. When I was on, when I left the Research Council. I was on the I was on the EPSRC for a while, and when I left the Research Council, the total investment in in nuclear fusion fission was about seven million research mm. and a bit more on infusion. I mean, tiny amounts of money, because actually public um, there was so, such public um, suspicion of, of of nuclear power, and you know we've moved on. Right. Yeah. But nuclear is still really important, and it's going to be vital if we're going to really fight climate change. In my view. Right. I mean, exactly. It's one of those things where if uh, the technology hadn't already been invented and we were in this climate crisis and someone invented nuclear fission now, it would be like the miracle solution to climate change. People would be, you know, amazed by, you know, what you can just do this reaction and it produces energy. <laughs> yeah, the problem, of course, is the concrete, isn't it? You know, the vast building you need, which of course... Right, yeah. But but on the, and and the expense but um you know we've suddenly realized we do need to spend a lot of money on technology we've done it this this year and maybe we'll have to do that and i mean again it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a global issue you know i think um other people are not going to change their way of living unless we demonstrate we're going to put a lot into trying to mitigate climate change i think a lot of obviously before this you mentioned about how having scientists Scientific advisors standing next to politicians could be quite like undermine trust long term. And also, I think a lot of stuff around like climate change and issues around like nuclear power in the past and stuff has been linked to trust and whether or not the public trusts the science. 
And is there any something you think that the scientific community can do to increase that public trust? Um, and especially, I guess, in how it has applied to COVID so far? There's a great deal. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a lesson for the Turing Institute as well. The science we're doing is not our science. It's their science. You know, it's the public science. The public are paying for this science. And the effects of that science, good or bad, will be actually public. So I think we have a public responsibility, and we don't do that very well because we tend to be a bit elitist, a bit shy, um, a bit reluctant to try and bother. Um, when I first started doing broadcasting, um, I mean, the classic example was when I did Your Life in Their Hands, which was a big series. I mean, that was watched by a vast number of people, um, and it won BAFTAs and all the rest of it. Um, uh, um, the human body. And, and I remember going to uh, a meeting at the Royal Society uh, and being cut dead by everybody. Nobody would talk to me because I had been so prominent on television. It was really? simply disreputable. And I, I, I started to leave the building. I started to walk down that big staircase towards the street, um, towards Carlton House Terrace. And as I was leaving the building, uh, Martin Riss came up the, up the stairs. And he said, he said, that thing you did on television last night was brilliant, wasn't it? He said, you must keep doing that. That's really important. And, you know, I was really ready to give up. I was so disturbed and dispirited that I felt that really, you know, and, and actually he sort of, that, 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 that very short conversation encouraged me to continue. Um, and I think... Um, you know, I, I, can, I continuously got, you know, quite snide comments at meetings and so on from people who said, well, of course, he's not a proper scientist. Um, because, you know, he's just, he's just, you know, just a publicist or self-publicist. And, I, you know, and the fact, you know, um, no, I, and it was, it's, it's, you know, it's dispiriting when you fight like everybody else to get a paper in nature and you feel, you know, when you do, you've done all right, you know, but it doesn't count, you know, when you've been in the public eye. Um, so yeah, yeah. certainly then, um, we're talking now, of course, about the 80s, being in the public eye was a, a disadvantage. I think now it has changed. We've got a lot of very good scientists who do television, radio, journalism and so on. There's much more on radio, uh, which is probably the best medium of all because... You're not distracted by the vision, which I think is important. Uh, and I think also uh, in the last 15 years, there's been a massive interest in science in schools. That's probably the most important. And I think the, the biggest single issue we have in our society is the neglect of primary school education. I think we need to have far more scientists doing primary school teaching um, that is not in any way to deny the, the need and importance of the humanities. I think I've made that clear already. But it seems to me that um, far too many primary school teachers who are really excellent teachers have never done any science. So they don't, they can't, um, they're incompetent or frightened of trying to do an experiment in front of a, a group of eight or nine-year-olds. So I think the need to deal with the teaching at the time when the brain is most plastic you know, the, the, the primary school. Primary school is more important than secondary school because that's really where things start. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the past so many 
women have been less confident about doing science because, of course, primary school is predominantly run by, by, by women. I mean, we should have far more mixing of the sexes um, uh, throughout education. So there should be more women in science in, in secondary school and more men in, men in, 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 in education <laughs> in primary school because those role models are really important. And I think if we were really going to change understanding, um, it must be to try to change how we teach science. At the moment, um, you will see it at the Turing Institute, the people who become so uh, you know, embedded in their science, they've forgotten what lies beyond that science. And I think you know, there's, a, there's a need for us to, be, to have generalists and respect people who are reasonably general. Um, we don't do that enough, I think. It seems to me to be a mistake because putting your science in a societal context is very important. Certainly, that's the reason that we wanted to start doing this podcast to begin with, is to uh, highlight. I mean, today we're talking to you, uh, who is yourself uh, a science presenter, but often we'll talk to our, our own colleagues who are researchers. And of course, they're not going to be going into the nitty-gritty of their, exactly how their algorithm works. I mean, we want to present this kind of thing to a general audience. But at the same time, we do want to talk about, well, why is their research important to society? Like, what's the actual motivation behind them doing it in the first place? Um, and, I, yeah, no, I certainly think that it's, it's a hugely important thing, and, I, and I'm glad I, I didn't have to live in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I think one of the things I've tried to do, I mean, I've, I've tried to keep my science going. So although I'm, I'm long retired, I still have a research grant and I've still got some laboratory work going on. In fact, the, the work I'm doing at the moment is, is really, really rather exciting because we're looking at embryo metabolism, talking about biochemistry, which I don't understand, but there we are. But, you know, but, but basically, um, I think we found some novel molecules which haven't been described, which the embryo is producing, which might be fundamentally very important in human development. And so... Um, and I think keeping that interest going, uh, being surrounded by people who are clever enough to help you do it, because that's one of the things about the university. I mean, you know, in a decent university, you're going to have people who are much brighter than you are, better scientists than you are. Um, and actually, um, I think that's another thing we don't teach very well in school, which is collaboration. And to my mind, it's collaboration which really makes us good scientists. There's certainly a, a a sort of movie stereotype of the the lone nerdy scientist, uh, usually a man. I mean, you know, they don't re exactly they don't represent the what modern scientists are like, and it's not they're not part of a group. They're just doing things on their own in a cupboard, and uh, <laughs> but that's uh, that's not how it works. <laughs> well, it isn't really. I mean, there are a few Nobel Nobel Prize winners, of course, who've done exactly that, but most Nobel Prize winners you know, are, to some extent are a figurehead for the work they've done. Um, because, of course, most of that work is collaborative work. Um, and very often, who actually chooses, who, how the Nobel Committee chooses the actual uh, person to give the prize to is, you know, is, is based on you know, a whole range of different influences. And I think um, most of us in science I think really, I, I can, you know, I know, for example, some of the papers I've published, which are more mathematical. I think it's fair to say that I had a very poor understanding of the maths, but I really understood the biology pretty well. And, you know, that's how we worked together. And we would, you know, we would bounce off each other and learn from each other. And um, uh, some of those, I think some of the, some of the papers that I've published, which are slightly mathematical, which offer a new mathematical explanation to something in biology, are probably amongst 
although of course they haven't had the sort of translational importance that some of the other work I've done, in terms of the science, they've probably been quite high quality. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we, we tend to, of course, we tend to forget that actually the papers that are published in the medical journals are not read by anybody. You know, I mean, people people don't read Nature for Fun or PNAS for Fun, really, do they? Because, you know, it's, it's mostly the sort of stuff um, that you, you know, you, it's really too dense. Now, I mean, science is so complicated. I mean, for years, I used to take Nature regularly and read it. And I, I um, my wife had a, um, her grandfather was a Russian emigre who, who left during the Russian Revolution. Um, who was a businessman. I mean, he had no science at all. And I used to go and play with chess with him before he, before he finally died. He took nature every day. Mm. But, and that was always extraordinary, you know, that he was still reading nature every week. Right, and, keeping and up trying, with trying to discuss research. It. But now it's so difficult to do that anymore because nature has sort of, you know, it's got but so, so esoteric and so is science too, largely. Um, yeah, I, I certainly remember when I did my master's degree that one of the um, uh, professors teaching said very, very clearly in one of our early lectures that, you know, when I was doing my degree, um, it used to be that at least in your field, you could follow the totality of the research worldwide of what was going on. You won't be able to do that now. That's impossible for one person to do that, even in, even in a niche field. So... You take take science more generally, or even just biological science, or that things that they publish in Nature. Yeah, you're not going to be able to follow all of those disparate areas because it's just too complex and too diverse for any one person to understand. You've seen um, that during the pandemic, haven't we? Because of course, when I was a medical student, immunology was basically. I remember we knew there were four blood groups. We knew there were sort of white cells that sort of floated around inside the bloodstream and did something to do with infection, but we weren't really quite sure what. Now, in fact, immunology has been unbelievably complex. And of course, the pandemic has changed it even more. The pandemic has really blown immunology into almost a new stratosphere because it's become uh, so exciting a field now um, with so much stuff. Absolutely. Robert, I'm going to ask you a slightly uh, go on a bit of a tangent here and ask you a slightly different question. Um, so we went back. We were talking earlier about what scientists um, can do to to uh, increase public trust in in the way that they do things. But like many others, you've been quite critical of the UK government for the handling of the pandemic. Um, what do you think we can do uh, to ensure that in future crises there's more transparency about how? the government uses evidence from scientific research to inform their decision-making? I think it's very difficult to see that happening overnight. Um, I, I think for that really to happen, you need to have science literacy. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that those ministers of government, those secretaries of state who are in scientific positions, have much basic science. They have a scientific advisor, of course, in the department. But that's... And that's been... I mean, the scientific advisors have been somewhat downgraded anyway. Scientific advice to government is always, uh, it obviously has to be balanced with other political considerations, uh, normative values of one society and so on. So I think it's always difficult. But I do think that we've not, um, we've not really encouraged science literacy. Most people going into politics now increasingly go into politics without having done a job before at all. I mean, they've, they've become, they were politicians before they went into parliament. 
Um, mm. They don't actually represent the people from which they, they come um, in the same sort of way that they did when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a child, when I was at school, um, politicians seem to have a much broader grasp of, of things than they do now because they'd all worked and they'd worked in the law, they worked in medicine, they worked in, in industry at quite high levels. Um, now, to some extent, that still happens in the House of Lords, but even there, there are increasing number of political appointments to the House of Lords. Right, right. So it's just... So, so, uh, so I mean, to answer your question, yeah. I, I, I think it would be fair to say that the, the, the need... Um, is for, I mean, I think it would need a, I think it would fundamentally need a, a change in our political process. I mean, I think that's one, I think it's one of the deficiencies in our democracy that um, nowadays we don't want MPs to do any work outside the house. So they don't, they, they're expected to be there to do stuff and they follow the whip. The whip is not a great way of ruling because of course the whip means that immediately you have to ignore any side issues that you may feel very troubled about because your side has decided to focus on this one issue. And the whip, to some extent, has happened in the House of Lords, not so effectively because, in fact, nobody takes much notice because we're not accountable. There's great advantage in not being accountable, actually, in, in the Lords, because it means that you can be quite outrageously independent. Um, and some of that independence is really important, in my view, um, I mean, it's it's forgotten. I mean, the last two months, um, on vote after vote, we've sent stuff back to the Commons on the grounds of wise intervention uh, on a whole range of issues. And to my mind, um, to, to devalue that process, which is what has been happening over some years, is unwise, because actually, of course, it's almost the last chance you have to have a really independent mind looking at legislation and trying to modify it to make sure that actually it is really fit for the purpose it's intended. We have great scientific advisors, but the question really is, um, what influence do they have with all the other things which are impressing on the Secretary of State in that particular department? And I think to some extent, it's less rather than more. And you know, you, 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 know, you, could, you could see some of our politicians at the moment taking huge credit for what's happened with the health service. Well, actually, right. if it had been left to them, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> well, yeah, it comes a bit down to, as you were saying earlier, you know, it's like, oh, the, these 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 international companies have made some good vaccines. Oh, that's a win for us. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, of course, it's a win to some extent for the universities. Right, um, yeah. But, you know, um, does that mean to say universities are going to get more funding for anything? No, of course it doesn't. <laughs> Well, on that um, slightly uh, political side point there, Robert, I think we'll, we'll start to come to an end. Um, before we do, uh, I think uh, Rachel's going to hit you with a bonus question, um, which is a bit more related to your background. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so just obviously, um, your scientific background kind of comes from sort of a fertility studies perspective. And COVID in particular will have had a massive impact on people um, in terms of being able to, having to delay their starting families, sort of having access to IVF treatments and like how the cost of that would impact people. Um, and it's just, do you have an opinion on kind of what that effect might be um, both now and after the virus is gone and how you think that might sort of shape the field of fertility studies and sort of how people approach that issue? I don't know that it will change much. I think the, the, the you know, the, the, the desire for couples 
as they grow together or grow up, uh, to have children and nurture children is a very profound imperative, really, for humans. I mean, humans, um, you know, it's, it, it, it is one of the most deep um, parts of our emotional being for most people. And I think if you think about it, all the things that one does in one's life, and I include very much include myself here, whatever I've published or broadcast or written or whatever else, most important thing that one does is, you know, ultimately to bring up the next generation, either by teaching or your own children. So I think that is always going to be there. So people are always going to really want to have children. And I think there's going to be a backlog, of course, of people who delayed and they're worried because they are, if they're women, they're aging and therefore not so fertile. Um, my concern is that the treatments are so expensive and so exploitative at the moment. So the, the thing about this piece of research I'm doing at the moment with my, with my postdoc, Sheba Jarvis, uh, I mean, we've got, it's her and a, a chemist. I mean, it's the three of us really doing this and a mathematician who comes in occasionally to tell us what we've got wrong. But, but essentially, um, what's, What's so exciting is that if we're right with this thing, we would be able to make the process so much cheaper and more successful. And, you know, to sort of end up your scientific life doing something like that seems sort of vaguely important, really, because actually make it more accessible if it's a good treatment seems to be worthwhile. So I think um, the, the worst aspect of the pandemic um, has been that, of course, um, you know, people will concentrate on clinical in vitro fertilization. The science recedes into the background because there will, there will be this demand. And that, I think, has actually already subverted good uh, research. You know, the, the most frustrating thing about the pandemic this year has been that Sheba, my, my well, she was, a, she was a PhD student. She, she Actually, she got her PhD with a, with a, with a viva in Greece and a viva in uh, in, in um, Stockholm or somewhere simultaneously, you know, <laughs> the most strange PhD thesis. Um, no, but I mean, she did very. You, well. you mean very, because very, it was? Very, very uh, do you mean because it was done online? Is that what it you done mean? online? Right, yes. right, right. Yeah. But I mean, but I mean, she's she's now you know she's now doing this work with me, and of course, um, I suppose um, the big frustration for both of us has been that for the whole year we've not been able to have access to our stockpiled samples. We've not had uh, um, access to some mass spectroscopy and a whole range of things like this because we can't go into buildings which are not essential uh, where there might be COVID. So, you know, we've, we've been really stuck. It's research like that which has come to a halt. And I think it's hopefully that, you know, we will, will get going again. Mm. That, that sounds a little bizarre, really. I mean, obviously, I, I think that the restrictions are really important and not having too many buildings where people could breathe each other's air is is obviously the best thing right now but you know i'd have thought that small you know one or two people going into vital research you'd have thought why not keep that open um but yeah i don't know well i mean the the, the, the i mean imperial college rightly or wrongly and i think probably rightly has been very very strict about entry to buildings mm. in the laboratories and yeah, it's, shut, it's basically shut down office buildings and um research buildings which are not directly related to what's needed. And, of course, um, the big issue for most universities, of course, is protection of their student population. Um, and, I, you know, understandably, that's that's what I think Imperial's doing. I'm sure that's true um, in Oxford and Cambridge and University College and all the other universities as well. And I think, you know, I mean, 
God forbid that one is would be a vice chancellor at this time of the this time. I mean, yeah, well, terrible yeah. time running university. <laughs> I mean that the pressures on senior staff um, are massive, actually, um, and I, I, you know, I feel for them because I don't think I don't think they've got easier decisions to take. But in practice, um, you know, I have a lot of um, material stored in minus seventy freezers, which I can't get to, um, and even if we got them out of the freezer. Um, we can't, you know, the spectroscopy you need is, 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 is pretty sophisticated and there are only a few instruments in the country that we could really use. And the main, uh, the main one that we've been using is a commercially available uh, um, company. And, of course, they, they can't allow us in either for the same reason. Yeah. That they're social distancing and you know, all the rest of it. So, you know, um, we, asked, we have been stuck for the whole year. The whole year has really been effectively written off. And we've not published. We did get a grant, but I mean, this year, but you know, but we can't use the grant, which is bizarre. However, fingers crossed, maybe by, by you know March, April, we'll be able to do something. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I'm. I really hope that that does pan out for you, Robert, and that that research goes ahead. I think uh, we'll we'll wrap up here. Um, before we let you go. Um, I don't know um, if you if uh, do you have any any upcoming uh, documentaries or anything you want to plug or if not do you have social media that people could follow or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've I've nothing to plug. I mean, I've been writing a, a memoir, um, oh, okay. which, which is not um, going to be published. I don't know when it'll be published because first of all, I haven't bothered to find a, anybody to publish it. Although my my agent has been handling it, I have a, still have a little agent, um, but I'm going to start writing the children's books again which I'm, I'm, I'm talking about that this week but um the memoir is um of course it's not an autobiography i couldn't write an autobiography because i think in order to write a proper auto autobiography you either have to be truthful or dead and you have no interest in either at the moment so, so, <laughs> so the memoir the memoir is about all the things that have gone wrong basically i mean you know it's right. all sort of failures in the laboratory and you know stuff that didn't work and, and actually i think it's quite funny i mean i think you know i think um a life in science can be very very humorous and and certainly um some of the things that have happened to me seem to be completely unbelievable when i look back i mean some of some of the some of the experiments i messed up i mean outrageously messed up you know um and, and i think that in itself is probably worth confessing <laughs> Is there, is there any particularly uh, humorous anecdote of a uh, mess-up experiments you can share? Or is it... Oh, gosh. Or was it too, I one, is Sunday it after, one Sunday afternoon going into the lab, we, you know, we, we, had, we knew when we were doing genetic analysis of, of the DNA, I was working with Alan Handicide, and we knew that we had to, um, we knew had to be absolutely sure that if we were diagnosing cystic fibrosis in the embryo, it, you know, we must be certain that it was and not put an embryo back that had cystic fibrosis because that was the whole point of the experiment. But we weren't certain actually whether or not the, you know, whether the DNA might be configured in a different way in the egg. So we weren't sure whether in fact the PCR that we were, this was the very beginning of PCR when PCR was done by hand. So we were putting it in a hot water bath, cold water bath with a stopwatch. I mean, it was a Sunday afternoon and I went in and finally after six months of finding, take a long story, I'd found a homozygote woman who was amazingly 
uh, kind and she allowed me to take one of her eggs. So she had cystic fibrosis. So we knew the egg must have both alleles. So that was ideal. It was a brilliant egg for us to have. So she and we, and I, and we, 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 we broke the cell up and put it in a, um, you know, um, and then we put it in a water bath at sort of 93 degrees Celsius and 65 degrees Celsius, two and a half minutes, one and a half minutes. That was afforded 30 times, 30 cycles by hand because there was no machines and the stopwatch on the bench. And this is really boring. So I put the headphones on and started to listen to Shostakovich's 11th. <laughs> you know, and it's quite rhythmic stuff, you know, so you could plunge it in, plunge it in, plunge it out and forth. And I got to that very loud chord in the middle of the third movement and took the tube out of the cool bath and plunged it into the 93-degree bath, but plunged my hand in too far. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, and this precious piece of DNA was, of course, at the bottom of the bath. <laughs> A single cell, you know. So oh, no. it held up the experiment for months and months. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was just going to be that you scolded your hand, but that's even worse. <laughs> I did scold my hand, but actually, I mean, nobody nobody in the lab was interested in that. They were just furious with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that, Robert. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and thanks again for coming on, on the podcast and speaking. Okay, I'm sorry, yeah, so disjointed. So I hope you've got something to edit it, but, that, you know, it's difficult with this... Um, these connections are bizarre, aren't they? Anyway, nice, yes. very nice to talk to you. All the very the best. Yeah. It was what lovely to talk do? to you too. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, all right. All the best. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamandsun.bandcamp.com.